Dear Father, Father, we ask that you would teach us intimately about yourself out of your word tonight. Speaking through the Apostle John, Father, you, you chose to record so many important things in his gospel that are absent in others and in such unique ways. I pray, Father, that I would teach it according to your wishes in that regard, that I would convey the thoughts of the text properly. And I ask, Lord, that the Spirit, in his wisdom, would bring the knowledge to the listener that you want them to have. And that we would see these things in new ways so that we might use them in new ways and not merely to puff ourselves up with the knowledge that we gain. And I ask, Lord, that you would, uh, you would also show us the boldness and the urgency to carry out what we learn and what we do and in what we say to others. And that as our mission requires, Father, we would be ambassadors. We would be one who would speak on your behalf and represent you in your absence uh, so that you might speak through us. First with me tonight, then with each of us in days to come, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to help set the context for you, chapter 10 is a direct continuation of the scene that we've been in now since back, well, really chapter 7, as we looked at the scene of Jesus in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. So when we left at the end of chapter 9 last week, he had been arguing, if you remember, with the crowds and then at the very end with Pharisees. He had healed a blind man following the Feast of Tabernacles as he exited the temple. That whole scene, as we studied last week, was a picture of salvation and lots of interesting things there we looked at. And then as it concluded, when Jesus reunited with the blind man and introduced himself as Messiah, that's when the Pharisees got engaged. And so we are still in Jerusalem. We are still on the day after the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, the week of that festival. And so we're still looking at a division within Israel. What we're going to study tonight in chapter 10 is commonly called the Good Shepherd Discourse. It follows, as I said, from the conversations of chapter 9. And as you've seen now on time and time again in this study, this is a chapter that builds our understanding of the nature of saving faith. And I think probably at this point, given that we're almost halfway through the book, you might be thinking, well, I think I've heard just about everything I need to hear about salvation. It's a topic I'm well acquainted with now. And Personally, having been saved, I'm ready to look beyond that, perhaps, and that's understandable, I guess, to a degree. But the more you'll study John and the more we get into the details of saving faith, the more I think you'll find how important it is to be right and sure on these essential issues, not just on salvation by grace alone through faith alone, yes, but more specifically on who starts it, who gets it, why, why does it come to some and not to others? How come the same message spoken to a crowd has some who believe and some who don't? Why doesn't it make sense to everyone? How do we get it to make sense to more people? What, in other words, it's about the ecosystem or the economy of salvation as much as it is about the nature of it at the heart of it all. This is important, I think, to any Christian who has as a burden a desire to reach more people with the gospel. It will inform your approach to the process and help set your expectations for what God may do with your obedience. That's what I think John is really focused on throughout the gospel. That's enough introduction, certainly. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Jesus speaking says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Now, at the end of chapter 9, the Pharisees had heard Jesus declaring that those who claim to see, that is, those who have claimed to have the knowledge of God, they are actually blind in that regard. To which the Pharisees then exclaimed, well, surely we're not blind, meaning we're not blind in that sense, in that way. To which Jesus replied, no, that's exactly what it is. Because you say you see, you are blind. Because you say you have spiritual wisdom, you actually remain spiritually ignorant. For the person, though, who would humble himself or herself and in so doing recognize his or her spiritual poverty, then that person is in the right position from which God can reveal himself to them and they can come to know him. Because God will not choose to reveal himself to a person who is um, spiritually wise in their own making, in their own estimation. That's where we left off in chapter 9. Now, in chapter 10, Jesus continues speaking to this same group on essentially the same idea by explaining the impossibility 
of finding God by your own means, in your own power, through your own wisdom. And in order to convey this truth, Jesus is going to teach using a figure of speech. Now, a figure of speech is different than a parable. A parable tells a story to explain a single concept at the core of the story, while a figure of speech uses a metaphor to explain a series of points. In one sense, they're really opposites of one another. The parable has a series of events to teach one point. Metaphor is a series of points made with one concept. This is a metaphor or a figure of speech in that there is a series of points Jesus is going to make by taking a central idea and then just expanding it over and over all the way through. I think I mentioned in the very first lesson on John that John never teaches a single parable. He never records a single parable in all of the Gospels that he taught because probably they were covered well in the other ones. But he does use figures of speech. Jesus' topic is the impossibility of a person finding God by his own means. And the metaphor that he uses to explain this idea is of shepherding a flock. Shepherding a flock. Obviously, we can start without even going further than, than just the opening idea. We can immediately begin to identify how the metaphor applies to the point. For example, we know the shepherd here represents the Messiah of Israel, Jesus himself. And that metaphor, by the way, would have also have been easily understood by his Jewish audience as he spoke these words, because multiple Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like Zechariah used exactly this same metaphor to describe the coming Messiah, referring to him as the shepherd of Israel. So this would not have been lost on his audience. They would have understood what he was saying. And the sheep reference mean those who follow Jesus, his flock and that is specifically the remnant within the nation of Israel and later Gentiles who come into the church, right? First, let's look at what Jesus says as he starts the figure of speech. Each shepherd has a certain fold of sheep that is all their own. And even though you and I would look at a flock of sheep and they all basically look the same, to a shepherd, each sheep is unique. They know them by name. Even if they haven't gone to the point of naming them, they're very familiar with their flock. They would know their fold so well that if any were missing or if any sheep that were not their masters were in amongst the others, they could see that. They could detect that and they would know it. That was their job, to be that intimately familiar with their flock. Shepherds had to have that level of scrutiny over their flock because they were financially responsible under the law for the disposition of the master's sheep. If they had a, a sheep that went missing, they were financially liable for it, back to the master. So they had a strong self-interest in keeping the sheep together, but ultimately it was about keeping the master happy. There was always a proper entry into the fold, right? There was always a door, and that door was guarded by a doorkeeper. And if you were not a recognized member of the family, or you weren't the shepherd or a servant of the family, someone that had authorization to be in the pen, you weren't going to be allowed in. If you were a thief, on the other hand, these measures of doorkeeping weren't going to stop you, or they weren't going to deter you. You would find another way in. You climb over the fence when no one was looking. You would uh, come in in an improper way with the intent to do something dishonest. Now, a shepherd is never going to come in any way other than the door, right? Because there'd be no reason to go around or go over. They're allowed to come in. They're expecting the door to be open when they show up. They have a legitimate reason to enter. Now, Jesus is applying that understanding from the culture as a figure of speech. The message to us is very straightforward and relatively easy to understand, right? The shepherd's the Messiah, the sheep are the saints, true believers. The fold, then, is a congregation of believers, the, the church universal today, we would say, or Israel in Jesus' day, those of the remnant within Israel. And that door, its focus is on Jesus' role as the legitimate leader of the sheep in contrast to those who would try to usurp his power and claim it illegitimately as if they were the Messiah or even in some lesser role as God's appointed leader for God's people. And in that contrast, you can clearly see that there is the one who has the right to enter and comes through the door and those who are trying to enter and are climbing over the wall, so to speak, illegitimately. And throughout history, this pattern has been seen among God's people. Throughout history, God has appointed shepherds to lead his people. Those representatives are often called shepherds in Scripture, and they still are today even. And those leaders are operating according to a call and a purpose God gave them in leading God's people. Ultimately, the final fulfillment of this idea is in the Messiah himself who leads everyone in the kingdom. Meanwhile, there have also always been false leaders, false teachers, those who portray themselves to be men of God in an attempt to gain 
control over God's flock. And Jesus says these imposters, though they try to gain access, they'll never be able to come in through the door. They can only gain access in an illegitimate way, over a wall, so to speak. Trying to represent a God they don't know. They are thieves. They are robbers holding authority over God's flock. And he is clearly speaking here now about the Pharisees, that they are the ones trying to do this illegitimate kind of ruling. Why are they illegitimate? Because they're spiritually blind, because they're not of the flock. There's a basic premise that you cannot be a leader over something you are not a participant in to begin with. And so as illegitimate leaders, as as unbelievers, they have nothing to do with the flock except to try to come in and steal and destroy. And then you have this third person, this doorkeeper. Jesus says there is a doorkeeper that protects the flock and guards who may enter and join it. And the doorkeeper could be one of a couple of ideas. At the very least, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit and all those that God uses to guard the hearts of God's people. For example, we could say that in Jesus' day, John the Baptist was acting as one of these gatekeepers in the sense that he guarded entry before the Messiah's arrival. He was the one who was there for those who were coming by the Spirit into faith. So God's always had people on earth, like Moses in the time of Israel, who acted as that representative for doorkeeping purposes, the Spirit ultimately being that doorkeeper in all cases. Now, in the metaphor, Jesus addresses how the people of God respond to these various leaders, to legitimate ones and to illegitimate ones. Verses 4 through 6. When he puts forth all his own, He goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. We started with a focus on Jesus and the comparison was on shepherds that are legitimate versus shepherds that are not. Now we turn this just a little bit. Now we're looking at the whole thing from the perspective of the sheep, how the sheep hear these two voices. Shepherds go before a flock of sheep. Here in Texas, you're more familiar with cattle ranching, and when you drive cattle, it's always from behind. You have to move these things with with dogs and horses and whatever other means to get them going and, and herd them from behind, usually. And occasionally, you'd see that with sheep as well, but more often than not, they would lead from the front. And that would involve the shepherd setting out on a direction with his staff and calling for the sheep with his voice, and they having become comfortable with him and knowing his voice, they will follow the voice. Now, they may not be the brightest barnyard animal you've ever met, but they can distinguish between the voice of their shepherd and that of a stranger in regard to this call. A stranger is just not going to be able to call the sheep to follow and expect the sheep to do so, because only the voice they're familiar with is reassuring and comforting. So that's that's the real life example of sheep. Now, the metaphor with that idea in mind, the metaphor is very easy to understand, at least for those who have the spirit. The true and proper shepherd of God's people leads from the front. That is, he would set the example. He would be the one that God's people would follow willingly. Remember, Paul said to imitate me as I imitate Christ. He didn't put himself ahead of Christ, but he certainly put himself in a beeline to Christ in the sense of an example of something you can look at to see what it looks like to follow Christ. That's the idea of a proper shepherd. He doesn't drive God's people from behind with burdens, with guilt, with pressure. Jesus is a Messiah who goes before us in every possible way. He lived before we were created. He gave himself for sin so that we don't have to. He was the first fruits of resurrection, paving the way for our own resurrection. So he goes before us in all those senses. And then Jesus says that when the Messiah comes and declares himself to the world, those who are his sheep will find him. His voice is heard by the sheep and they follow because they recognize the voice. Now, what are we to make of that earlier statement, though, when he says concerning the stranger's voice that the sheep never follow the stranger's voice? Are we to suggest that true saints never follow after false teachers, never follow after false messiahs? Well, to understand this point, you have to remember that every metaphor, in fact, every parable for that matter, has limited application. You have to be careful about extending it beyond its intended use. We have to recognize that Jesus is speaking in broad terms about how God's people recognize a person or leader to be the Messiah or how they recognize someone to be an enemy, but as a group, not how it works for every single given individual. So as a group, the flock of God will find God. And as a group, the flock of God is not taken aside by the false teachers and the false messiahs. 
There are exceptions to these rules. There are going to be those who would be misled. So just remember, Jesus is explaining to Pharisees why so many Jews were following him, even as the Pharisees themselves were working so hard to stop it, to discredit him. They called him a fraud. They took every opportunity to tear him down. And yet the people still followed Jesus. The principle of the metaphor is reflected in that. Jesus is saying believers are incapable or that the flock of God is incapable of being pulled aside from God's purpose, though some sheep on occasion may be misled. And you can understand that exceptions are possible just by reading most of the New Testament letters, which spend a huge amount of the time warning us of the very possibility that we could be misled by false teaching. Here again, the purpose is to teach the broad principle, but principles come with exceptions. So to sum that up, while the people of God will not be fooled in mass by a false messiah, false leaders will deceive a few believers. Notice in verse 6, John says, Pharisees couldn't follow the teaching in the sense that they can't understand its meaning, the main point, in other words, which here again is proof that they are not one of the flock. Those who are gods hear his voice and follow him, and the stranger's voice is ignored. And here you have a group of men saying, I don't understand what you just said, Jesus. Point being, they're not part of the flock. Now Jesus shifts the focus of the metaphor once again. Now he's going to continue to emphasize the sheep entering now rather than the shepherd. So I think of this like a cube, and every time he turns it, there's a new side to it. So the first side was the leaders. second side was those who follow. third side is now, how do you become one of God's people? Verse 7, Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So now he's comparing himself to the door. In the first part of the metaphor, he was the shepherd. Now he's the door of the fold. Sheep join the flock by entering through the door of the pen. Likewise, therefore, a person joins the congregation of God's people only by entering through Jesus. There is no way to heaven except by faith in Jesus Christ. A person who dies without confessing faith in Jesus Christ will not be counted among God's people because they never walked through the door, so to speak. They never entered the fold. Now, this statement, Christ's statement in chapter 10 here, among others in the Bible, many others, absolutely precludes the possibility of many ways to heaven. The concept that you will hear is certainly outside of Christianity. It's very common. But sadly, even within the larger community of Christianity, the nominal Christian community, you'll hear the occasional person making statements of this sort. Or at the very least, equivocating on the question of that one who's never ever heard the gospel, how will they be treated at their judgment day? And the gospel is utterly clear about that outcome. To not confess Christ is to not be saved, period. And there is no guarantee in Scripture, none provided, that every single living human being will at some point in their walk on earth be given the opportunity to hear the gospel. That is not a promise in Scripture, and there is no guarantee, and there is no obligation on God's part to do such a thing. He was not obligated to let any of you hear it. He was never obligated to even bring it. He was never obligated to make any way available for those who fell. It's grace by definition. It's unmerited favor by his choice. It wasn't that long ago that a well-known pastor who has a large following and a, and a television reach, etc., he was on a talk show interview, and he was asked if he felt someone could enter heaven if they didn't confess Jesus, and he equivocated. He said, I don't think it's my position to say what God's going to do with that person who may never have heard the gospel. Well, he only has to read the Bible to understand the answer. And you would think he might have done that as a pastor. The Pope has been quoted just very recently saying some very similar things. Jesus' words directly contradict and refute any such thought. If you believe that there are other ways to heaven besides confession of faith in Jesus Christ, then you would have no reason to follow Jesus whatsoever. Because he himself declared he was the only way. If you believe there are other ways, then why follow a guy who you obviously disagree with, who you must think was wrong on that point, if nothing else? And if he's wrong, exactly what benefit is he to you as a Messiah? So his own confession, his own words say you must enter through the door. In fact, he's going to reinforce this even more strongly here in a moment. Notice as he ends that passage I read, he said that many others have come and, of course, continue to come 
declaring themselves to be ways to heaven, but they were illegitimate, they were thieves, and they come to destroy. If they can entice you into their way of thought concerning how to get to heaven, they have kept you, potentially, from the real thought, the real truth. So in that sense, they destroy you in eternal terms for having caused you to stumble in following them instead. Only Jesus is the door which leads a person into the fold, that is, into the people of God. This is another of Jesus' I am statements that we said punctuate John's gospel all the way through. Here he says, I am the door by which you must enter. And in case you and I are at all confused about the meaning of these things, about what it means to enter the door, he adds there that it means being saved eternally in verse 9. That entering here is specifically a reference to being saved, not to just joining a church or gaining a new identity. Then he adds, the one who has gone in, in this sense, confess Christ, in other words, become saved, that person will, quote, go in and out to find pasture. Now, the idea here is simple, but it's really profound. Once you enter through faith in Jesus, you join the fold, the flock. And then from that point forward, you go where the flock goes. You are always with the flock. And flocks went in and out. They went in in the nighttime sometimes, or after a period of being in the pastures for a while, they would come back into the pen, maybe for shearing, maybe for other reasons, for safety. But at some later point, they're let out again. The point is, you're one of them. Everywhere they go, you are with them. You are forever a part of the family of God, always with the fold, wherever it goes. And in that case, you will find good pasture, so to speak. In other words, you will never have to need or worry about earning or retaining this identity, this salvation, you have become one of the fold. This is a stark contrast to the Pharisees. They lay burdens on the people, as Jesus says elsewhere. They make demands of the people. They set expectations that were always changing and never could be satisfied. They offered no security, no joy, no assurance, because they had nothing like that to offer. It was all a game that they contrived for their own making to boost their power, their authority, or their wealth. And in the case of their victims, the sense was of constant vulnerability, of constant worry that if you weren't living up to whatever these standards were, you might be in jeopardy of your salvation being unavailable to you on the judgment day. It was classic works-based thinking. And Jesus says, no, you come in through this door and you're one of the fold forever. You go in, you go out, doesn't matter anymore. Nothing takes it away from you. Notice how he ends the section saying that unlike the false teachers, he came to give life and that abundantly now, I have seen this particular verse, John 10, 10. I've seen this adopted by various churches, ministries from time to time, sort of like a slogan or calling card. I came to give you life and that abundantly, right? They celebrate the idea that affiliation with Jesus means abundant life, which obviously that's true. He said it himself. But at least in some of those cases, I found that they're insinuating that our abundant life is found here on earth. And particularly in the form of wealth or health or prosperity in other senses. In other words, they make the promise about the here and now and they sell it back to people in marketing the gospel as in a way to attract people into the faith. Come into the Christian faith and have an abundant life. Let's look at this verse clearly based on the context. After all, what's he been talking about this whole way? The conversation is clearly centered on what? Salvation, eternal life, issues of eternity. And if we stay in that context then we have to conclude Jesus is describing the abundant life found in the kingdom, in our eternal state, and then maybe to a limited degree, you might also expect that there is an abundance of living now in the sense of the joy of knowing the Lord, the blessings of walking in the Spirit. I'm not ignoring those things, but the promise of abundant life is not a promise to make our life on earth easier or richer. And it does not negate the benefits of walking with Him now to simply clarify that. What it does do, though, is it negates those who would overstate what Jesus meant about the here and now. And I do think that has damaging consequences in the, in the life of a believer who doesn't understand this properly. Because when life suddenly takes a turn for the worse, which inevitably it will in an earthly sense, where's that abundant life I was promised? Is this a God I can trust after all? Will be the natural thinking of someone under those circumstances. Finally, Jesus turns the metaphor one more time around. The cube spins once more. This time he moves the focus on the shepherd's love for the sheep. Verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. 
I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me, even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. So now we get to the heart of the discourse where it gets its name, the good shepherd discourse. He says, I am the good shepherd. And he says, I lay my life down for the sheep. Now, in in shepherding duties, one of the things the shepherd did, probably the most important thing he had to do, the biggest responsibility he had was to protect the sheep from enemies, to make sure that the same number of sheep that went out with him in, in the morning come back with him at night. A shepherd would have to watch over the flock, Look for threats. If he saw something coming, drive off the threat, like a wild animal, for example, who might come to steal the sheep. But in every case, whether a thief or an animal, etc., the shepherd was placing himself at risk of life or limb to guard these animals. That was part of the job. And why did he do that? Well, he was either the owner of them, in which case this was his livelihood, or he served a master, perhaps his own father, who would have demanded that he not lose a single sheep. Earlier in chapter 6, remember in the, in the discourse when he had fed the 5,000, Jesus compared himself to one who had sheep back then, remember? And he said he would not lose a single sheep that was given to him by his father. It's the same concept. Now he says he loses none because he is willing to lay down his life to save the sheep from the enemy who wants to kill and destroy them. And from there, he extends this figure of speech just once further, adding the idea of a hired hand in contrast to the shepherd. Now, a hired hand is just a caretaker, someone who's employed by the master. He's working for the money. That's why he's there. He has no other reason. So if a master, for example, was short on sons, didn't have the time himself, needed to have his flock cared for, he might hire someone to do that work, a hired hand. When the hired hand gets the job, he has basically the same responsibilities and the same duties, and he might be very conscientious as they go. But at the end of the day, he is just working for money to fulfill his duties to his employer. Now, what would happen, do you think, in the course of a work day if that hired man encountered mortal danger while working on the job? I would imagine he's quickly going to conclude that no amount of money is worth his life. It's not his sheep. He's just getting his minimum wage and this animal's about to eat me. I think I'll forget the minimum wage today and I'll take off and take care of myself. So he runs away. When he does that, of course, with the sheep are left behind, they're defenseless, they're going to face certain destruction. And all of this is simply to say that a hired hand has no vested interest in the sheep, in their future, in their safety. And that lack of loyalty will be revealed in a time of pressure, in a time that exposes it. So in this case, who would that metaphor now be speaking about? Who's the hired hand in this situation? It's always the same answer, right? It's back to the Pharisees, back to the religious leaders of Israel, those who were ruling over the flock of Israel, but they approached that role as if they were hired hands. In other words, they were in it for the money. They were in it for the prestige, the money, the power. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus says this about these men in in Luke chapter 16, verse 14. He says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at Jesus. Lovers of money. So they had no true interest in the welfare of God's people. They lived only to serve their own interests. And as soon as it was no longer in their best interest to care for God's people, well, then they would abandon that post. And there are men like that who still serve today, always have been. Jesus says, in contrast to that, his approach as the true shepherd, the good shepherd, is entirely different. First, you notice he says he knows the sheep and they know him. There's an intimate relationship that links him to this flock between Jesus and the believer. You may have heard this at some point in time, that you have to have a personal relationship with Christ. I can remember as an unbeliever the first time I heard somebody say that. It just sounded absolutely bizarre. How can you have a personal relationship with God in heaven? Personal relationships are between two people that know each other well. And yet that was the terminology people were using to explain the difference between what unbelievers in my situation, for example, have experienced. That is of religion, of participating in groups of people pursuing ritual. That might be a definition of religion. I've heard it described as a man's attempt to reach God. So we contrive a system which we then put our beliefs in, thinking that by adopting this system, I'm now approaching God in some respects. It's the spiritual equivalent of the Tower of Babel. It never gets anywhere close to God. 
It doesn't please God for us to contrive our own means. And relationship is when the Lord of the universe comes and makes himself known to us, for it must come down from him to us. We can't find it on our own. Once he reveals himself to us, he has established a relationship with us. And then we come to know of him through that relationship. And that's why I said in John chapter 3, it's described as being born again. You give your child life, physically speaking, and over time your child comes to learn of that relationship once it's already been established. And similarly, we come into a relationship with God by his work in us, and then over time we come to understand I've become a Christian. That's the relationship between the two. Here he's saying, I know my sheep and they know me. And the word know here in Greek is of the intimate sense of know. And that means in an intimate relationship. So it starts with that. That makes us one of his fold. Secondly, that relationship is made possible because our good shepherd lays his life down for us. So it is established by God, made possible by Christ's death. And this is in contrast to those who are only concerned with saving their own skin. Jesus is concerned with saving us. And so he has to put his life down in place of ours. He dies in our place. Very much like the metaphor would suggest a shepherd that goes to battle with a wild animal while the sheep are protected and perhaps dying in the battle. Obviously, we know he's referring to his death on the cross, which was done for our sins. This is, by the way, one of many times in the gospel when Jesus foretells his own death and does so as a purposeful action intended to save the lives of his sheep, not as a victim, not as the result of a plan gone awry, but as purposeful and planned. Jesus says he lays his life down for the sheep. The sheep are those appointed to the fold by the father, as he explained earlier in chapter six. And now you have Jesus saying that he lays his life down for those whom God has intended to bring into the family of God. Notice in verse 16, then he says he has sheep. Not even in this fold, that is, those he speaks to in the moment are Jews, the Pharisees among them. And he says, I have another fold altogether that is also included in this plan, which we now understand simply to be the difference between the Jewish people and the Gentile peoples. So there are going to be these two folds, Israel and the Gentiles, that will become one with a single shepherd. And he has them elsewhere. Now, what's really interesting to me at this point is he speaks of the sheep as present tense. Yet at this time in history, there was not a single Gentile Christian that we know of. Christians didn't even exist at this point. There was just the Jewish people and a Jewish Messiah. But he is already speaking of sheep before they existed, which confirms what he said in John chapter 6, which is there are those the Father is giving him and he knows who they are. This is similar to what Paul hears when he enters Corinth, remember? As he's about to enter Corinth for the very first time, before any evangelist had ever been there, and he's concerned for his safety. He hears from the Spirit saying, do not fear, go into Corinth. I have many friends here. Present tense. Even before the gospel had reached the city, those who were the sheep of God were known in the city. Then he says the father loves the son. Why? Because the son takes upon himself this task of dying for the sins of the sheep or of the flock. But the death of Christ does not end his work. It says not only does he lay his life down, but then he says so that he can take it up again. Jesus reveals here not only the necessity of his death, but also of his coming resurrection, that the plan has both sides intended. It was his death that saved us from our sin, but it was his resurrection that made possible our glorification into a new body. Because he was raised from the dead, we have proof he will do the same for us. As the shepherd goes, so goes his flock. That's what he means when he says he goes before us. And then lastly, Jesus' act of sacrificial death on our behalf, he says, did not make him a victim. Nor did it mean he was less powerful than his enemies. On the contrary, he says, I did it myself. I, in fact, more specifically, he says he lays it down of his own initiative. The word initiative in Greek here is important to understanding what he's saying. That word in Greek, matau, it's a compound word which is of two Greek words that mean of myself. So most literally, Jesus said he lays down his life of himself. What that means is, Everything about the event came from Jesus. Everything about his death is of himself. So, for example, he decided that he would die. He decided he would die before the foundations of the earth. He decided the way it would happen on a cross. He decided the time it would happen in the year that it occurred. He decided who would accuse him. He decided who would condemn him. And he decided the manner in which the process would take place. Do you remember when he was standing before Pontius Pilate? John 19:10. So Pilate said to him, 
do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So Jesus decided that. And then it goes further than that. This whole process being of himself means he put himself on that cross. He put himself there. The nails didn't hold him there. He literally willed himself to die. Acts 2, in recounting this, Peter says to the men of Israel, Acts 2, 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined, we could say predestined plan, and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. I love the contrast there. He says, this one who was delivered over by a predestined plan of God in the foreknowledge of God, you then killed. He's reflecting God's sovereignty and providence united with men's actions. These men made no decisions concerning the outcome. They had no bearing on what happened or how it happened. And yet they did it. Showing that you can be an actor in God's purposes and yet not be in control of what's happening. You can be involved in making decisions of your own will in light of what you see or in terms of how you see the world. And yet, at the end of it all, have done it all according to exactly what God predestined and foreknew. Those things are not incompatible. In fact, that's exactly how life works every day of the world on earth. And then lastly, when the right time came, Jesus took his own life. John 19.30, on the cross. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. You could say that no one could kill Jesus. Only that he would lay his own life down did he die. And in that moment when he gave up his spirit, Jesus died, not being killed by another, but rather laying his life down voluntarily for his sheep. It was an act that was conscious, intentional and planned. And this was the plan because there was no other way. There are not many ways to heaven. There are only one. And as other wise people have said in the past, if it were the case that there could have been another way, it makes utter nonsense that God would have allowed his son to die on the cross. For if his son and he knew there was a better way, one that did not involve his own death, why would they pursue this way? But because it's the only way, it's the height of love. Now, of course, Jesus uses this elaborate figure of speech to teach something very deep, but it thoroughly confuses the crowd and particularly the leaders as well. And in the course of that confusion, a division, another division arises. And how many times now in this three chapter section have we seen division be the result of whatever Jesus said or did? And that is John's emphasis here again, that there is constant division within Israel as a result. Verse 19 through 21, a division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? John offers us these words as a footnote, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on them. But remember, we just ended the entire Feast of Tabernacles week. And throughout the week, we, we've seen this division. And even as John began his gospel, remember chapter one, the Messiah's arrival into a dark world as the light divides the nations rather than uniting it. Right? This is the very nature of what Jesus is doing as he enters the world. Because some in this crowd are his flock, they receive it, but many are not, and so they cannot receive it. The explanation offered here for how Jesus could do such marvelous things and at the same time speak in such strange ways is, well, he must have a demon. This is the same accusation he's heard before, and it's the result of this accusation that leads to the destruction of the individuals who, who believe it and the nation who follows after it. As we said last time, this is the unforgivable sin. And yet there are still those who reject this explanation, who say, you know, I'm seeing something that apparently you're not seeing, because when I look at what I'm seeing here, I'm asking myself, can someone who heals a blind man not be the Messiah? Isn't that one of the signs we're supposed to look for? This comment, in other words, is in effect the person saying, I think this guy's the Messiah. That's the better explanation, not demon possession. And now at this point, there's a break in the narrative. We've seen the Feast of the Tabernacles end. We've seen this constant pattern of division. Jesus reiterating how he is the fulfillment of all of these things. And the Feast of Tabernacles is roughly late September, early October every year on our calendar. It's eight days long. 
And when it's over, we can presume Jesus went back to the Galilee for the only reason he was in Jerusalem was for this feast. Later, we find out now in verse 22, he returns to Jerusalem for a new feast, the Feast of Dedication, often called Hanukkah today. The Feast of Hanukkah is not prescribed in the Bible. It was instituted in Israel following the Maccabean Revolt. Just a bit of background will help you understand what comes next in this text and why John put it next to this discourse we just finished in the Feast of Tabernacles. Even though these are three months apart, why does he stick them together? The revolt of the Maccabeans that led to the Feast of Hanukkah happened in 164 B.C. It was against the Syrian army that had conquered Israel in the years following the death of Alexander the Great. And the revolt was against all of that oppression. Under Greek rule, when the Greeks had been in charge before the Syrians, the Greeks had severely corrupted the nation of Israel by getting them to join into Hellenistic culture. For example, a Greek stadium had been built right next to the temple in Judea, in Jerusalem. And the Greeks used to perform what were the forerunner to the Olympic Games in these stadiums. And when they did their games, they did them in the nude. All the men would take all their clothes off and do the sports. It was lewdness. It was just as much then as it was now to do that kind of thing. Just ungodly behavior at the end of it all. But there are historical records that say that the priests in the temple were even corrupted by this influence, such that when they heard the call, the trumpet call for the start of the games, they would abandon their posts in the temple as they were serving and sacrifice, throw all their clothes off, run down the hill, join in the games. And when the games were over, come back, put their robes back on and go back to sacrificing in the temple. So this was the kind of corruption that was invading the culture of Israel because of the Hellenistic influence of the Greek culture. And of course, there were those in Israel who were very bothered by this. But the point is, there was tension around that. Later, when the Syrians came in, conquering the Greeks and taking over, and this is after the fall of the, the Greek Empire into its four divisions and so on, a Syrian named Antiochus Epiphanes came in, came to power, and he, he was coming from Syria, from the north. His interest was in attacking Egypt to the south and conquering Egypt. And for him, Israel was a base of operations from which to launch his attacks into Egypt. Well, he wasn't successful for the most part in attacking Egypt. Every time he would try and fail, he would take his anger out on the Jews. He would persecute Israel as a result. And he's famous for slaughtering Jews wholesale, forbidding the practice of Judaism, outlawing any aspect of Judaism, uh, desecrating the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar and, and much, much more. For example, if a, if a mother would dare circumcise her son against his rule, against his edicts, which he had forbid, he would have the child killed and then tie the child around the mother's neck and make the mother wear the child, the dead body of the child, for a time before finally killing her as well. Uh, this is the kind of butchery that took place under Antiochus. It was under this kind of treatment that a rebellion inevitably was going to happen within Israel. And within a very short period of time, a few years, that rebellion rose up in a small town just northwest of Jerusalem, begun by a man named Matthias and his five sons. They succeeded in taking over the whole of Israel from the Syrians. And when they were able to do that, then they went back and purified the temple, rededicating it to the Lord and reinstituting sacrifice in the temple. The rededication of the temple happened on exactly the day, three years later, that it had been desecrated. That's actually foretold in Daniel. At that rededication, a new eight-day feast was inaugurated at that time in the year 164 B.C. And it was an eight-day festival because they patterned it on the Feast of Tabernacles because the Feast of Tabernacles was looking forward to the kingdom and the arrival of the king in his home, in his temple in the kingdom. This was their coming back to the temple as well. They used that as their pattern. And secondly, when the Feast of Tabernacles was supposed to have been done three months earlier, they couldn't do it because Antiochus had forbidden it. That's the one they missed the most. And so now that they could observe it, they chose to make this eight-day festival their makeup festival for the Feast of Tabernacles that they didn't get to do three months earlier. And that's the second reason they made it eight days long. That also explains why in the Feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, lights are the key feature because the lighting of lamps in the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the key elements they brought into the Feast of Hanukkah because they wanted to do what they had missed out on earlier. Now, you may have heard of this idea of the oil lasting eight days and the miracle of the oil, and that's why the light was lit and all that stuff. That is a myth. It was made up years and years later by rabbis 
to explain what was being done. It's retold in Jewish homes today as they celebrate each year, but there's no historical record of that ever happening. It's simply storytelling and embellishment on, on the real reasons it's done. The, the reason light started is because of the connection of the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Feast of Dedication has a celebratory quality similar to the Feast of Tabernacles, gift-giving, lighting of lights, feasting for eight days, celebratory kind of thing. And as you see here, according to John, it's a feast that Jesus participated in because he is seen now to be going up to Jerusalem for this feast. The historical origins of that celebration might cause you to wonder a little bit about whether God truly intended that feast to be within Israel's plan or within their annual calendar, or is it just man-made and we shouldn't actually think of it as one of the feasts of Israel? And if it was intended, you would expect to see some mention of it in the Old Testament, wouldn't you? Some indication of God's interest in seeing it done. But on the other hand, if it's not prescribed by God, then why does Jesus honor it? Right? That's kind of where our mind goes. Well, the answer is some of both. Um, the Old Testament doesn't mention the feast, true, but Daniel did prophesy about the events of Antiochus leading up to the feast. So you can see that scripture anticipated the events that surround this moment, certainly. Secondly, the fact that he does join in on the feast here is proof in itself that the Lord was in favor of it. I mean, clearly he wouldn't have done it if he didn't think it was the right thing to do. Therefore, you have to assume the feast has some purpose in pointing us to Christ. That even if it's not captured in the Old Testament uh, specifically, that doesn't mean God wasn't working in it in some way. Now, with all of that background, it should make better sense to us why John chose to knit together these two scenes, these two elements, these two discourses into a single narrative. Because at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus has already said, I am the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd of the sheep. Now at the Feast of Dedication, which occurred about three months later, he's back at it using exactly those same themes because the feasts are so similar. So he's saying, I'm a light again. He's talking here about sheep again. So when Jesus re-entered the temple in around December, when this feast is held, it had been only three months since his earlier dramatic confrontation with the Jewish leaders, which we've just studied. And it's easy to see why the people would still have remembered that conversation. He probably hasn't been in the city in between those three months. So he comes back and it's natural in some sense for the whole thing to pick right up where it left off. Both for us, but also for the events of the people there. So John puts the two together and he says, while walking in the portico of Solomon... This is a large covered area joining the temple courtyard. Jesus is again teaching. Verses 22 through 30. 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. (laughs) Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. It's clear there in verse 24 that at some point the crowd had just had enough of what they had heard, and they said, look, just come clean. Tell us plainly, who are you? If you're the Messiah, say so. They just want that. Just tell us, just say, I am the Messiah. Hand out the card. It's really interesting to me that they would make such a statement because the fact that they even knew to make this suggestion tells us they already understood plainly what he has been saying, right? You don't walk up to complete strangers, people you have no reason to think might be the Messiah, and say, if you're the Messiah, please tell me. That's not the way we think. But because they had heard things that told them he was saying he was the Messiah, now they want to hear it again in different words, plainer words as they call it. What they wanted was really for Jesus to advocate for himself on his own behalf. This isn't a case in where they hadn't been able to figure out what Jesus was thinking. They knew he was saying he was the Messiah. They just didn't want to accept it. What they wanted is him to make a case to them that he was the Messiah. Make it plain. Tell me clearly. Get me on your side. And what we do in our human way of thought is to go exactly into that mindset. If I tell you I am important or famous or clever in some respect and you don't see it right away, now I feel like I need to roll up my sleeves and prove it to you. I've got to show you that I am what I said I am. Never do you sense that in the Gospels from Jesus. Quite the opposite. Why? Because those who are appointed to know will know it no matter how he says it. And those who are not appointed to know won't get it no matter how he says it. In other words, it proves his own belief in his words that is, If you were my sheep, you would understand what I'm saying. 
as he points out, they don't understand him because they are not his sheep. Faith was not the product of persuasion or analysis or reasoning. Faith is a supernatural change in the heart done by God alone. And when the Lord gives the gift of faith, it always results in the gospel being accepted by that individual. When the father isn't working, then no amount of persuasion will work. It's just that simple. So Jesus could speak softly. He could speak in parables. He could speak in metaphors. He could speak in subtle ways. And he's not concerned that even one of his sheep will miss the message. They will all get it because they're going to get it by God's power. So he says to them, look, I already told you, you just don't believe You've even seen my works, miraculous things that my father has given me to do that testify that I am who I said I am. You have all the proof you need. It's not ambiguous. Nevertheless, he says, you're not of my sheep. Notice what he doesn't say. Jesus does not say, you do not believe, therefore you are not one of my sheep. That would make sense to many of us. It would put the belief in front of the becoming of a sheep. You do not believe, therefore you are not one of my sheep. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he uses the word because. To indicate that they haven't believed in Jesus because they are not elected by the father to be one of his sheep. Remember, Jesus said in chapter six, no one can come to the son unless it is permitted him by the father. There's a barrier to coming that God only can remove. So even though they had heard him speak plainly about his identity, nevertheless, they could not accept what they had heard as plain as it was because they weren't one of the sheep. This is a consistent testimony of Scripture. We are only able to believe and receive the gospel because we are already predestined by God's gracious choice to be his sheep. The Lord counts us as sheep even before we know him. Have you noticed that? You remember the 99 sheep and the one sheep from Luke chapter 15, right before the parable of the prodigal son? So that whole chapter, chapter 15 of Luke, is three parables. It starts with 100 sheep. Then the woman with the ten coins, then the father with the two sons. It goes hundred, ten, two. All of it narrowing us down to the idea of division. In the case of the sheep, as an example, the first one, you have how many sheep in that parable? Anybody remember? A hundred. How many are lost? Did you notice that? They're all sheep? It's not 99 sheep and a goat who turns into a sheep. It's a hundred sheep, 99 of which are in the fold, one is lost, meaning unsaved. But they're all sheep. And Jesus goes up out after the sheep, picks it up, puts it on his shoulder, carries it, and adds it to the fold. But you're always a sheep. You were sheep predestined from the foundations of the earth to be sheep. The only issue is what day are you found? That is such a consistent message across Scripture. It shows up in parables, shows up in metaphors, shows up in the plain teaching of the New Testament letters. And that is that the Lord has appointed some to salvation and some not. The ignorance of the crowd here means, therefore, that they are not among Christ's sheep. This goes to what he said earlier. If they were, they would know his voice and they would hear and they would respond. Lastly, he repeats some of his teaching from John 6 when he says, no one can snatch the sheep from his hand. The word snatch is harpazo. That same word is used by Paul when he discusses the rapture. So it literally means to be caught up, to be taken away. He says, no one can carry off the sheep. From my hand, you can't be stolen. You can't be removed. Once you've been given the gift of faith by the spirit, you are placed in Christ's power, held there by the son's authority and by the spirit. In other words, once a sheep, always a sheep. And in case you're in any doubt about that guarantee, he goes a step further and he reminds you, you know, the father is also holding you and the father is greater than all. So if the father has given someone to Jesus, as he says in John six, then there is literally nothing in the universe powerful enough to change that decree. The devil doesn't have more power than the father. The demons don't have more power than the father. Not even you, not even you have more power than the father. So nothing, not even the believer himself, can remove the sheep that are in Christ's hand. And then to prove the point, Jesus gives them the answer they requested. I love what he does here. They said, tell us plainly. He just told them all the reasons why he doesn't need to tell them any differently because they have everything they know and it wouldn't matter anyway. But then to humor them, he tells them plainly. He says, I and the father are one. That is as plain a statement as Jesus makes concerning his identity as you find anywhere. The only one I find even a slight bit more convincing is when he stands before Pontius Pilate and Pontius says, are you the Christ? And he says, you have said it. But it's essentially the same answer to declare yourself to be equal to God is as provocative a statement as anyone could make in Israel in that day. 
And yet here he is doing that. By the way, this is an offense in Israel punishable by stoning. And yet, this is exactly what the crowd asked him to do, is it not? They said, state it plainly. And this is plain. And as he finishes saying what he says, what do they do? Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For, for which of these are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. So Jesus says plainly, I'm the Messiah, and then they pick up stones to kill him. Is it any mystery why he wasn't willing to speak in plain language most of the time to this crowd? Is it any doubt now why? Right? And think about this logically. He knows that those intended to understand his words will do so regardless of how he says it. Because the father will ensure that the sheep hear his voice. Meanwhile, those who are not his sheep have no hope to understand his words, no matter how clearly he spoke. Right. He knows that, too. So think of this by speaking in parables and in veiled references like metaphors. Jesus was avoiding inciting crowds to riot while still reaching his intended audience. It's like speaking on a wavelength that only the intended audience can hear and the other ones can't. It preserves his safety for as long as he intended it so that he could get the message across. And at this point, as they pick up the stones, he engages them in one last discussion to highlight their hypocrisy and their ignorance. He asks them, for which of my good works am I in trouble, by the way? And it's a sarcastic statement, which shows that obviously sinlessness and sarcasm are not incompatible. <laughs> and it's one spoken by a man who is clearly not in fear of his life. You know, if you really thought your life was about to end, you might be a little bit more cautious with your words, right? It's utterly clear that his life is not about to be laid down in this moment and he has no concern that it's about to be taken from him, is he? As author of his own death, this isn't the moment. Still, he uses the crowd's anger here so he can test their hearts by asking them to justify their actions against him. And they respond, well, of course, we're not stoning you for good works. We're stoning you for blasphemy, for your words. And notice what that means. It means they understood what he meant when he said he was God. There's no there's no ambiguity here. They're saying, we heard you say you're God. We don't like it. We refuse to accept that. Once more, if someone tells you that Jesus never declared himself to be God, something I've heard accused once in a while, Here's a clear moment you can take them to in the Bible where it's obvious that he did exactly that. This verse, by the way, directly contradicts the Jehovah's Witnesses, among others, who make as one of their key points at your front door that Jesus was not God, but was just a prophet. For they argue, how can you ever consider that God might die? Well, in one short little passage, he covers both the fact that he is God and the fact that he is going to die for good purpose. And I'm sure they're ready for you to open up John 10 because I'm sure they've got some thought of how to refute it, but it's right there. When they raise the charge of blasphemy, he asks, if you can stone me for saying I am God or I am the son of God specifically, he says, then how can it also be that in Psalm 82, verse six, it is written that the judges of Israel were gods? That's who the psalmist is speaking of, by the way, in that psalm. He's speaking in a, in a form of a euphemism that as God's representatives on earth, the judges of Israel were acting as gods in a sense. They brought God's counsel to people of God. They, they brought God's judgments to the people of God. They enforced God's law. They did the very works of God as his representatives appointed among men on earth. And the psalmist is using that idea when he says, you are gods. He calls you gods, meaning he calls you his representative. And that's it's a euphemism to mean that. So the Lord turns that around and he says, if men could be called Elohim, which is the word in Hebrew back in Psalms, that is God's plural. His point is, if it's appropriate for the psalmist to use the term Elohim to describe those who were just merely judges among men, then how is it blasphemy for the Messiah, who has clearly demonstrated himself to be such by his works? How can it be for that person to be blaspheming if he calls himself the same thing? When he is clearly a greater representative, doing the greater works of God than the judges did, wouldn't at least the same term be appropriate? Jesus is infinitely greater 
than the judge. So if the term God could be used to describe them euphemistically, how much more should it be used to describe the Messiah who's proven himself to be so? And then he proposes a test for himself. He says, you know what? How about this? Here's a test. If I am not performing the works of God, well, then you don't need to believe me. Let the works, in other words, decide the matter. Judge me by my fruit. If someone claims to come from God, but he cannot produce the works that prove his claims, well, then you have a right to dismiss that person's claims. But if I come with the necessary works, well, then you should be prepared to accept my claims. He says, you know, if you don't believe my words, you should at least believe my works. I mean, works are the proof of my words. If you see the miracles, then you should acknowledge. But of course, given all that he has said, it is clear that they are incapable of grasping the fact of who he is. That's the ultimate message out of John 7 through 10, that he came with works and with words, fulfilling Old Testament scripture and feasts. And in each case, he was met by a crowd that was divided on the very idea of who he was, despite all that proof which is itself evidence of his teaching that you are either in the fold of God or you are not. And if you are, you'll hear his voice in one way. And if you are not, you will hear it in a different way. And so he is at all times dividing mankind between light and dark. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the, uh, the reminder, for the teaching and the exhortation around, around the grace that you've offered to us in your Son. And that offer, Father, was brought to us by the power of the Spirit, made real in our hearts by your will. And that though we hear it and respond and, and obey according to all that we have learned, nevertheless, Father, we know that you are at work creating these outcomes as only you can. Father, I pray that as we come to understand these things, as they may challenge us at times, I also ask, Father, that you would give us the greater understanding to know how, and despite your sovereignty, we are called to act and to, to work for the sake of the gospel. Never let our knowledge of these things become excuse, Father, to be complacent or lazy, to, seek, uh, to, to, to fail to seek for opportunities for the gospel. To remember, as, the, as Peter said in Acts 2, that though you predestined and foreknew the plan, it still requires that a man or a woman take the actions you have intended so that they would come to pass. You'll do that through whomever, Father. We ask that you'd use us and that you'd call us to be responsive to that opportunity. And Lord, I also ask in the, in the weeks to come as we continue in this book with the uh, essentially with a half of it still to go, that you would bring more men and women to this study as it be your will so that we can share even more of the truth of these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.